Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Francis Beckwith, Professor of Philosophy and Church-State Studies at Baylor University, giving a talk entitled, Taking Rights Seriously, How Courts and Legal Scholars Diminish Religious Belief. Dr. Beckwith's talk was part of the Distinguished Speakers Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. It's been, this is the fourth time I've been, I've been to your campus, and it's just a delight to be here. It's, uh, uh, there are many friends that I have here, and uh, both old friends and new friends, and uh, it's, even though my time here is not going to be that long this time, it's uh, every time I visit Franciscan University, it's, it's always a joy. Of course, I like the fact that, that, my, that your name is Franciscan and I'm Francis. That uh, doesn't hurt. Uh, the Pope is Francis. I'm sure that you know that. <laughs> my wife's name is Frankie. My grandma's name was Francis and so was my grandmother. So Francis really means a lot to me. So, so it's a delight to be here. Uh, this evening, I'm going to be talking about a topic that has interested me for about a decade or so. Uh, it's titled, Taking Rights Seriously. Now, some of you may be familiar with a book by Ronald Dworkin called Taking Rights Seriously, but it's spelled R-I-G-H-T-S. I'm gonna, my title is slightly different. It's R-I-T-E-S. Uh, it's not misspelled, but what, uh, what, I'm, what I'm referring to is how the courts, or what I'm going to deal with is, do the courts, do the, does legal scholarship really take religion seriously? Hence the title, Taking Right Seriously. I became interested in this about a decade ago as, as, a, as a topic of, of research. In fact, I, I just completed a manuscript that I submitted to Cambridge University Press with the same title. And it deals with a, a lot of these issues that are dominant in the culture today in which the beliefs that citizens hold that are tightly tethered to theological traditions are coming under greater and greater challenges, not only in the public square, but in the courts. Began thinking about it in, in 2004. I, I gave a talk at uh, Texas Tech University. You know where Texas is in Lubbock. You ever been to Lubbock? It's like the moon, right? Nothing, I don't think anything actually grows there. Um, but it's a, I was there speaking at the law school, and I was giving a talk on some of the conflicts between religion and science and public education. It was the, a couple of months after a, a book that I had published, Law, Darwinism, and Public Education had come out. Uh, and so I, and I published a few articles on this subject, and so I was invited by the law school to give this lecture. And I talked about many different, several different theological and philosophical questions that arise from these sorts of debates, although never really myself taking a position on whether any of those philosophical or theological positions were better than any others. It was sort of to introduce people to the issues that percolate beneath these debates. During the question and answer period, there was a gentleman in the audience. Uh, he was uh, a professor in one of the science departments at the university and heard about my lecture and raised his hand and was very upset with what I was talking about. Uh, he, he, he actually didn't ask a question. He said, you know, Professor Beckwith, all you've given us are religious arguments. And I paused and looked at him and I said, wow, I'm relieved. I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments. 
Now, it was a lot funnier, I guess, when I first said it. Uh, but, but the point, and he wasn't very pleased with that response. And the point of the response was this. Something that, at that moment, it was one of these moments where you sort of get an epiphany. <laughs> you know, things crystallize. And it was at that moment, and actually further into the question and answer period, what I realized that in our public conversations in which religion and religious belief touches on questions of public policy, people actually think if you can put the adjective religion or religious in front of somebody's belief, that's enough to declare it irrational. And as I began reading the literature uh, more and more and began working on what eventually became the book, Taking Right Seriously, uh, I was actually quite stunned at what I read, not only in the court cases, which I was familiar with and I'm going to share with you this evening, but also what's going on in the legal literature. Uh, a lot of folks, especially at places like Franciscan, even my home institution, uh, Baylor, wonder what's happened in the culture. And they, 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 they look out at some of the debates and, and, and court cases involving everything from the HHS mandate to the way in which uh, uh, certain parts of the public react so violently and negatively to religious belief. And, and I think one of the things that, that I've begun to understand while reading the literature is that you have, at least in the academic literature in, in the law, a, a small segment of scholars who have had, I think, a profound influence in the trajectory in which the culture and the law is going. And some of the arguments that they offer aren't very good. <laughs> but many of them live and survive and flourish within insular institutions. That is, institutions that are largely untouched by what many of you as students are learning here at, at Franciscan University and many of my students are learning at Baylor University, where you're taught about integrating your faith with learning, you're, you, you're exposed to the rich intellectual traditions from which Catholicism has, has arisen. You read Fide et Ratio, you're introduced to Cardinal Newman and Thomas Aquinas, and, and, and you think that really educated people everywhere in the academy know this stuff. They don't. <laughs> and at, at major secular institutions, they don't. And they're largely insulated from, from, from what many of us we're taught and we're exposed to. And so they tend to think that theology is simply nonsense and there's nothing to it. So if there's one thing you can, if you're gonna walk away from this lecture with is this. For those students who are studying this, I encourage you, and if you have a, a, have a, a kind of calling for this, if you're interested in, professional, in, prof in a professional life, in medicine, law, and so forth, we need people who are well-versed in the intellectual traditions that are attacked in the public square today. Because the reality is in the secular uh, academy, with the exception of my own discipline philosophy, people largely do not know what is going on, uh, especially in the discipline of philosophy, which I'll, I'll have more to say uh, in a few minutes. Um, in, in philosophy over the past 40 or 50 years, there's been a real renaissance uh, in theistic philosophy, in particular Christian philosophy. Um, I'll have more to say about that later, but, but if, if, you, if you leave this lecture with any lesson, it's this, or any advice. Consider 
entering those professions that simply do not and are unaware of uh, the, the complexities and the sophistication of, uh, uh, of theological traditions that many people opine about. I remember when I was a kid, 19 years old, they give you, this is an illustration um, from, from when I was a teenager. Uh, Ronald Reagan was running for president. Remember Ronald Reagan? Well, there you go again, right? Those are, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can also do Bill Clinton. <laughs> I feel your pain, I do, so. I should have beat you. That's my George Bush. Okay. Um, in any event, uh, Ronald Reagan's running for president in 1980, and some of you may know that he had a strong support from evangelicals in the United States. Evangelicals had largely voted for Jimmy Carter in 1970. Oh, thank you. In 1976, and uh, really switched sides to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And a large segment of those evangelicals, a large, excuse me, a large segment of those evangelicals um, were in, people that had really been nurtured uh, and grown up uh, under the tutelage of a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. You know about that book, it's about the return of Christ and, and Armageddon has to occur, right, for Christ to return. But according to this particular strand of Protestantism, uh, the church is raptured off the earth prior to Christ returning. There was a, um, uh, a, a, a writer for the New York Times named Anthony Lewis who in an op-ed column said that we shouldn't vote for Ronald Reagan because he has an incentive for Armageddon to occur so he'll have a war with the Soviet Union because that'll help Jesus come back quicker. Now I was a 19-year-old unsophisticated you know, I had not studied philosophy or theology formally, but I knew enough to read that and go, doesn't he know that the church is going gonna, is gonna to be taken off the earth before Jesus returns? That isn't that an incentive for Reagan not to start the war? That is, it turns out that this writer for the Times right, is sort of opining about a religious tradition of which he knows nothing right, in order to make a political judgment. And this happens today in a, in, in a different fashion uh, along other lines. And the, so the point is that, that much of what you learn uh, here, you don't realize, uh, could very well have an impact in the, the professional fields that in some cases, especially law and legal scholarship, is really untouched by any insights uh, from theological traditions. Um, I'm going to begin here with a quote, and, and you should have received, I don't know if you've, you've all received a, a, some notes. I'm going to begin with a quote here from, from Jeremy Waldron, who's a professor at NYU Law School. It's from a book he published in 2002 called God, Locke, and Equality, Christian Foundations of, of John Locke's Political Thought. And this is what Waldron states. Secular theorists often assume that they know what a religious argument is like. They present it as a crude prescription from God backed up with threat of hellfire derived from general or particular revelation, and they contrast it with the elegant complexity of a philosophical argument by Rawls or Dworkin, two uh, deceased philosophers of law. With this image in mind, they think it obvious that religious argument 
should be excluded from public life. But those who have bothered to make themselves familiar with existing religious-based arguments in modern political theory know that this is mostly a travesty. What I want to present to you tonight is the travesty. <laughs> that is to say, the absence, uh, at least in, in, in some court cases and among some jurists, as well as among some legal scholars. And I'm going to go over responses to these legal scholars. Some of you are going to, when we go over these responses, are going to think, this, it seems kind of easy to respond to these guys. And it is. But it really goes to show you something, that they're just not exposed to the types of criticism that, 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 are, that is, in fact, out there. And that I think, as Christians and Catholics, we actually have the better intellectual arguments. That, in fact, our arguments are persuasive. But there are many venues within the academy that have never been exposed to them. And they hold and harbor the, the prejudices that Waldron is talking about in this, in this quote. That is, they just believe that, that we just believe for sort of no reason. Or we believe because the, simply the Bible tells us so and we're afraid to go to hell. That's what a lot of secular people believe. And they're, they're typically not exposed to these sorts of arguments. So let me go over some court cases that kind of reveals this, this mindset. Um, there are obviously many other cases that, that I could cite and, and many other quotes. Um, but these, are, these sort of give you a, a kind of taste for um, what, what's out there. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the historian James Hitchcock. Uh, he's a, a professor emeritus at St. Louis University. About eight years ago, he published uh, a two, volume, uh, two volumes uh, published by Princeton University Press on religion and the courts. And one of his conclusions in the book is that since the not roughly the 1940s, the Supreme Court and most federal courts generally treat religion as irrational, dangerous, and ought to be domesticated in some way. Irrational, dangerous, and divisive. And so these quotes that I'm going to be reading from, from these cases are taken from the very cases that Professor Hitchcock talks about in his book. And as I said, he deals with a wide variety of cases. But these will give you a flavor for the, the, the kind of mindset that's, in, that's, that's, in, that's generally in the courts. Not, not, not every justice. Uh, some justices like Scalia have resisted this. Uh, and Justice Alito, to, to name two, that in recent opinions have in fact uh, shown that they do know that this is not an adequate understanding of religion, but generally the justices are educated in the law schools that are not, do not expose their students to uh, the richness uh, of theology. And of course, the justices who graduated from law school quite a long time ago hire clerks that are nurtured in the law schools that are, uh, are not exposing their students to these ideas in the present. So uh, there's a case, a uh, famous case, U.S. versus Ballard in 1944, where the Supreme Court um, uh, deals with this. Uh, it's a fraud case. It's not important that you know the facts of the case. It's important is this quote by Justice Douglas uh, from U.S. versus Ballard. He says, men may believe what they cannot prove. They may not uh, be put to the proof of their religious doctrines or beliefs. Religious experiences which are as real as life to some may be incomprehensible to others, yet the fact that they may be beyond the ken of mortals does not mean that they can be made suspect 
before the law. Many take their gospel from the New Testament, but it would hardly be supposed that they would be tried before a jury charged with the duty of determining whether those teachings contain false representations. The miracles of the New Testament, the divinity of Christ, life after death, the power of prayer are deep in the religious convictions of many. If one could be sent to jail before a jury in a hostile environment found those teachings false, little indeed would be less left of religious freedom." Unquote. Now, there's, there's actually something to commend this quote. Uh, Douglas, I think, in a sense, is right that the government shouldn't be in the position of judging necessarily the truth or falsity of religious beliefs in terms of religious liberty. But you can easily see how this understanding for religious liberty that could be transferred to uh, beliefs that citizens hold uh, that are tightly tethered to their religious traditions when they want to influence public policy. So supposing a, a pro-lifer wants to, a uh, legislator wants to put forth legislation to protect unborn life, and somebody tutored or nurtured on this understanding of religious belief automatically will think, well, since the pro-life view that the unborn child is a human person is really informed by the theology of these citizens, therefore, it is not by nature susceptible to rational argument. So, what I think is important here is not that, that, that Douglas is necessarily wrong in saying that the state should restrain itself when it comes to religious liberty, but you can easily see that once you begin to think of anything tightly tethered to a theological tradition as being beyond the can of reason, you not only, in one sense, allow for religious, you know, allow citizens to believe these things, uh, you also then set the table, so to speak, for saying that any belief that is tightly tethered to religious tradition is automatically out of bounds. And that is precisely how the scholars that we're going to be going over in a few minutes think about religious belief. Think about something like the HHS mandate, um, which many of you are familiar with because, as I understand it, Franciscan University is part of one, one of the lawsuits. Is that, is that true? Uh, and I was speaking a couple of months ago to a, a group of lawyers uh, on this, and one of the points that, that, I, that I stress with them is that I do think it's right to make the religious liberty argument. We have to say that what the federal government is, is doing is in fact coercing citizens to violate their conscience on a matter of moral theology, that they, are, that they believe that they ought not to uh, cooperate with. Okay? This, this is, we have to make the argument. On the other hand, though, we also have to make the public argument outside the courts that this is something that is reasonable to believe. Because the wider public, when they hear Catholics say something like, contraception is immoral, or even certain drugs that cause abortion are immoral, they translate that in their minds to something like this. Oh, that's like transubstantiation to Catholics. That is, they think that all our doctrinal beliefs are of the same sort in the sense that everything is the result of, uh, of mere authority and, and, and special revelation and not something that could be defended on reasonable or rational grounds apart from that. And so one of the mistakes, I think, of, of only making the religious liberty argument is that it tends to, in the minds of people that don't know about uh, our theological tradition, they tend to think that, oh, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services 
is doing something or is issuing a mandate having to do with health. Health is grounded in medicine. Medicine is grounded in science. Science is grounded in reason. You guys believe something based on faith. So it's faith versus reason. That's the mindset that's out there. So what happens is that what really should be two answers to the same subject, that is one answer, the Catholic answer, uh, is that our sexual powers are ordered towards a particular end and, and that end is a good and to intentionally obstruct that end or do something inconsistent with that end violates that good. Whereas there's another point of view that says our sexual powers in fact don't have any intrinsic purposes from which we can infer or imply any moral norms. Those are two different philosophies of nature, right? And so, but the way it's presented or thought of in the public square, it's science or faith or reason versus faith. So this is why it's important that we understand when the courts talk this way, that it's not, on one level, it's, it's, you can understand it. On another level, once those premises are put in place, people th then begin thinking about all theological claims as simply a different subject, when the, especially on this issue of the HHS mandate, when the, real, when the real issue is there are two answers to the same subject or the same question. One answer is the Catholic answer defended by certain natural law arguments, uh, and the other a kind of secular understanding in which nature is devoid of intrinsic purposes. Those are two different contrary philosophical views, one of which admittedly is tightly tethered to a theological tradition. The other isn't, but that shouldn't matter, okay? So that's, that's one quote from a, from a justice. Uh, just another one, um, a case called Serbian Orthodox Diocese versus Mikhejevic. Uh, justice Brennan, a Catholic justice, um, says, uh, it is the essence of religious faith that ecclesiastical decisions are to be reached and are to be accepted as matters of faith, whether or not rationable or measurable by objective criteria. He further argues that constitutional concepts of due process involving secular notions of fundamental fairness are therefore hardly relevant to such matters of ecclesiastical cognizance. So he's basically saying ecclesiastical decisions have nothing to do with the fundamental fairness and due process that we have in our civil and criminal and constitutional and procedural law in governments. By the way, he's never, he probably has never come across canon law, let alone the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Right, which includes a lot of due process, rules of evidence, right, all these sorts of things. Right? And yet this is presented in, in a Supreme, Supreme Court case. In another case, uh, Justice um, John Paul Stevens, uh, retired several years ago, cites the great jurist Clarence Darrow. You know, you know who Clarence Darrow was? He was the defense attorney in the Scopes trial. His opponent was William Jennings Bryan. Uh, who uh, ran for president twice and, and lost twice. Uh, this is what um, Stevens uh, says uh, in a concurring opinion in a 1977 case called Wallman versus Walter. He says that the distinction between the religious and the secular is a fundamental one. To quote from Dar Darrow's argument in the Scopes case, quote, 
The realm of religion is where knowledge leaves off and where faith begins. And it, and it never has needed the arm of the state for support. And wherever it has received it, it has harmed both the public and the religion that it would pretend to serve." Unquote. In fact, in a, in a dissenting opinion in a case called Webster vs. Reproductive Services in 1989, which involved a Missouri statute that uh, severely regulated abortion, and, and after that case it looked like the court was on the, was on the verge of overturning Roe v. Wade, Justice Stevens in his dissent uh, says that the belief that life begins at conception is a theological tenant and has no place in public policy. So for, 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 for Stevens, in fact, what I, I told some of my colleagues at Baylor once when talking about this, that it seems as though there are justices who are kind of sola scriptura secularists. <laughs> that is, they, they believe that the only way you can derive theological knowledge or, no, or, or knowledge that is uh, tightly tethered to the theological tradition is through scripture. And so they don't know how to handle theological traditions that, that maybe are a little different. That is, they, you know, scripture is obviously uh, the, no the norm of faith, but it's, it's one of the, uh, of the avenues by which God may communicate to us, and one of the other is natural, uh, our natural reason. In any event, uh, th that's, that's Justice, uh, Justice Stevens. Uh, in in uh, another case, a recent case, actually, it's, you know you're getting old when you say a recent case and it's 1992. Right? Uh, I just blinked and it, was it became 2014. A uh, case called Lee versus Weissman, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, says this. Um, it's a case involving a, uh, a student that did not want to hear at her, at her middle school graduation a, a prayer, uh, a benediction uttered by a rabbi, and the Supreme Court in that case even though she wasn't coerced to attend the uh, graduation, uh, according to Justice Kennedy, it was psychological coercion because the only way she could get out of listening, the listening to the prayer was, was obviously not attending, and that would deny her that benefit. So, so he ruled, ruled in her favor. But this is the important quote in this case. Uh, he says, um, the design of the Constitution is that uh, preservation and transmission of religious beliefs and worship is a responsibility and a choice committed to the private sphere, which itself has promised freedom to pursue that mission. This is, another, this is uh, very dominant in, in Supreme Court jurisprudence, this idea that religion is private and personal, and that uh, one's religious beliefs are, uh, somehow don't or ought not to influence one's public life. You hear a little bit of this in, in, in Washington right now where some people will talk about freedom of worship rather than freedom of religion, right? Because, and yet most of us when we think of our religious belief, we don't think of merely worship as being part of our religious beliefs, but in fact, or, or one way we express our religious beliefs or participate in them, it's actually uh, our religious beliefs are so integral uh, to our lives that it influences everything uh, that we do. That is to say, when we think of our, of our jobs, we don't think of it as merely a job, we think of it as a vocation, right? And the talents that we have as gifts. I mean, this is part of the way we sort of, we live, right? So when you hear, a, you know, somebody in Washington say, you just have freedom of worship, not freedom of religion, what they're essentially saying is uh, that whatever you think about the nature of your theological beliefs, you're mistaken. 
And uh, I think it's something that we should be very, very uh, concerned about. So th this, this tends to be, uh, and I could quote from many other opinions, this tends to be the dominant view among uh, many justices of the Supreme Court. Although I, I should read to you Justice Scalia's response to Kennedy. I, I just read you Kennedy uh, where he says that it's personal and private. This was actually Justice Scalia's dissent in that opinion. He says, in a, in a very Riley way, you know, the way he can be, uh, church and state would not be such a difficult subject if religion were as the court apparently thinks it to be some purely personal avocation that could be indulged privately, seek entirely in secret like pornography in the privacy of one's room. For most believers, it is not that and has never been." Unquote. So you, you find justices resisting this, but generally that's not the case. Generally it's not the case. There's, there seems to be, and I have on the notes here, a common thread in these opinions, and, and the thread is this, uh, that religious beliefs and their attendant notions, what I mean by attendant notions, are moral and metaphysical beliefs. Well, what are metaphysical beliefs? Well, those are beliefs that people have about the ultimate order and nature of things. So when I say something like, our sexual powers are intrinsically ordered to a particular end, or uh, my mind uh, is in fact ordered towards knowing, those are metaphysical claims. That is, it has to do with uh, the, the, the form and finality of the nature of the being that I, I am and, the, and how my parts work in concert for the good of the whole. So those are metaphysical beliefs. Uh, so a metaphysical belief concerning a public issue would be something like the abortion controversy, where, 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 where um, pro-lifers answer the question of the unborn's personhood, but not only appealing to the facts of science, but also dealing with metaphysical questions, like what does it mean to remain identical to yourself over time? Uh, is a unborn human being uh, a person, even if it's not exercising those abilities we usually attribute to persons and so forth. So that, that's what I mean by the moral and metaphysical beliefs that are attendant to religious ideas. Uh, so let me just begin that quote again. The common thread in these opinions is that religious beliefs and their attendant notions, such as moral and metaphysical beliefs, are, are epistemically akin to self-regarding private and personal matters of taste and thus not proper subjects of rational assessment. What, what, I'm, what I use the word epistemically. That just has to do with how we know things. It's a fancy way that philosophers uh, try to explain uh, how we come to know things. In fact, in philosophy, it's, the, the, it's, it's a sub-discipline called epistemology. For those who have, some of you studied this, it's old hat. Uh, for some, it isn't. Uh, so uh, when somebody says uh, that certain things can't be known or, or are not rational, they're making an epistemic claim about the scope of knowledge. So that's, that, that's what I mean there. Now, what about the legal theorists? I, I went over some court cases. Well, the legal theorists uh, are a different kettle of fish. Uh, uh, I, I can almost excuse the justices, because the justices, uh, many of them were educated um, long before uh, the ascendancy of what's happened in the past 40 to 50 years in the uh, kind of the movement within, within philosophy of theistic and Christian philosophy. Uh, in fact, the largest subgroup now in, in my discipline, philosophy, is a society of Christian philosophers, which include serious Catholics and evangelicals who actually believe that their religion is true 
and think that there are really good arguments uh, for their beliefs. Uh, and so a lot, you can imagine justices or judges not really being aware of this, but when you have legal scholars who are, have appointments at prestigious and elite universities, really either not knowing this literature or just ignoring it, I think it, it is, in the words of Jeremy Waldron, a travesty. So I'm going to go over some of the theorists, and then I'm going to uh, go over uh, a few critiques of the theorists. The first I want to talk about is, is a gentleman, Stephen Gay, uh, who's, who's since passed away. Uh, he was a professor at Florida State University. And in several articles that he published, including one that, from which I'm going to quote that I think appeared in the University of Pittsburgh Law Review, he states that the, the, the separationist view of the Establishment Clause of the Constitution is grounded on two primary assumptions about the nature of politics and religion. What is the Establishment Clause? It's the part of the Constitution that says that Congress shall not establish a, relig a religion. It's now applied to not only Congress, but all legislative bodies in the United States. Um, separationism is a view that interprets that real strictly. That is, that, that anything that smacks of religion should be excluded from the public square. So one could believe on one level, uh, I think most Americans would say, yeah, we should separate church and state, but we, di we disagree on precisely what that means. Strict separationists say not only should the institutional church and the institutional state be separate in their powers, but also bringing religious arguments in the public square or arguments that are motivated by religion is out of bounds as well. And that's the real strong, strict separationist. And Gay is one of these strong, se se strict separationists. So this is what he says concerning politics. He says, in a proper democracy, religion should be primarily a private phenomenon because religion and politics are simply incompatible. And he goes on to talk about what goes on in politics. You know, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing and smoke-filled rooms. And, you know, that's religious people, you know, should, shouldn't be involved with that, right? Because that can get really messy. So he said, that, you know, uh, on the other hand, he says, uh, this is a quote from his article, he says, the separationist assumes, quote, it is no longer possible in the modern world to decide collectively matters that are by their nature non-rational, metaphysical, and impervious to both empirical analysis and logical proof or disproof. He goes on to say the separationist perspective is that it is best for society if everyone is permitted to follow their own faith where it leads without having to worry about their safety in the company of others who are devoted to contradictory moral and theological absolutes, unquote. So he's very strong, right? It's, it's that, you know, religion, the reason why church-state separation, uh, he thinks of the separation of church and state as being a metaphor for the separation of faith and reason. And reason is embodied what? In this kind of enlightenment, uh, scientistic view of rationality. That is, it's got to be empirically proven. It's got to uh, fit with the natural sciences. And if it's outside of that, then it's not rational. That, and, and the other thinkers that we're going to go over in a little bit more sophisticated fashion offer the same kind of analysis. Uh, let me go over now um, uh, Suzanne Sherry. Susanna Sherry, excuse me. I believe she's a professor at the University of Minnesota. She was at Vanderbilt for a while. She's a law professor. 
And she's more explicit. She suggests that the relationship between church and state should be viewed as analogous to what she describes as different and contrary epistemic commitments of faith and reason. Although she concedes in one place in, in the article uh, th that I'm citing here, quote, while it may be possible to envision a religion based wholly or partly on reason, most of the major religions in America are based on faith as the underlying epistemology. According to Sherry, quote, this is again from an article, for the faithful, the ultimate authority and source of truth is extra human and evidence can, and in some religious traditions must be entirely personal to the individual. On the other hand, for the reasonable, that is, those that follow reason, right, both the source and evidence for the truth lie in a common human observation, experience, and reasoning. And then she goes on to say that people who, are, who hold the epistemology of faith, that is, a person who holds that quote, is able to ignore contradictions, contrary evidence, and logical implications. Indeed, one test of faith is its capacity to resist the blandishments of rationality. The stronger the rational arguments against the belief, the more faith is needed to adhere to it. However, she says, secular science and liberal politics, both committed to the primacy of reason, necessarily deny that any truth is incontestable." Unquote. Now I'm going to move on to the last thinker, and they pretty much all say the same thing, but I want to kind of give you a flavor for what's out there. And what is becoming more and more dominant. The Sherry and Gay articles are from the 90s. But since then, a, a, a more subtle and sophisticated version of, of, of their point of view has arisen. One part of it, or one angle, is that religion isn't special. And that is, that's the Ronald Dworkin angle of it. Uh, he argues that Religious beliefs are just like other fundamental beliefs that people hold about their worldviews. And to a certain extent, he's right, right? I mean, so for example, somebody may, uh, let's say a secularist may believe that the fetus is, is not a person. You may believe the fetus is a person. So from both your worldviews, you try to answer the same question. But theology or religion is not merely reducible to those metaphysical disagreements. That religion involves what? Ecclesiology, liturgy, uh, moral theology that's outside of philosophy, special revelation, all of which you know, work together uh, to communicate and convey what the community of believers upholds, right? So, but the attempt to sort of reduce theology or religious belief to something like one's personal worldview. That's the kind of religion that is not special. And then that's been combined with a, with the religion is not rational. <laughs> so uh, that is, the, the, that's the one that was, that we went over in the gay and Sherry quotes, but there's more sophisticated, less uh, inflammatory language versions of it. And the one that I want to I cite here is, uh, uh, from an author named Brian Leiter, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago uh, and a trained philosopher. And uh, Leiter, in a book that came out late last year, or late 2012, early 2013, called Why Tolerate Religion. And he contends that all religions have at least, have at their core two sorts of beliefs. And, and, the, and those, uh, it's on your, your sheet here, uh, two sorts of beliefs. One, 
at, some, at least some beliefs central to the religion issue in categorical demands of action, demands that must be satisfied no matter what an individual's antecedent desires and no matter what incentives or disincentives the world offers up. He means here in this first part is that religious people will sometimes die for their faith, even if they're offered alternatives, right? Give up, you know, worship Caesar uh, and you'll get to live. No, I will not. Okay, you're to the lions, right? So no incentives, right? That's right. I mean, that's just true, right? I mean, people have died for their faith. And Leiter's not saying that, that that's not necessarily bad in itself. He's just saying this is true of religious believers generally who really believe what they're saying, right? Okay, that part is not that controversial. The other part is, and this is the part that is very similar to what Sherry and, and uh, Gay say, or Guy say. He, they say, at least some beliefs central to the religion do not answer ultimately or at the limit or, or, or at the limit to evidence and reasons because evidence and reasons are understood in other domains concerned with knowledge of the world. Religious beliefs, in virtue of being based on faith, again, his, his scare quotes, are insulated from ordinary standards of evidence and rational justification, the ones we employ in, in both common sense and science. Okay? There's a common thread to this, and I, I call it secular rationalism. And I, I, I think there are three, there, there, the way we can sort of summarize uh, it under three different, um, three different aspects of it. It's based on, uh, it's the claim that religious beliefs are irrational because they are, one, based on unprovable claims in the sense that they are the sorts of belief that cannot in principle be proven, two, incontestable claims in the sense that they are the sorts of belief that cannot in principle be falsified, and three, claims that cannot change or develop because they are insulated from the ordinary standards of evidence and rational justification. Okay? It's similar to what the justices said, but a little bit more sophisticated. What's wrong with secular rationalism? Well, we don't have time to present it or to critique it in great detail, so I'm going to kind of give you the highlights and how, why this fails uh, and why, in the, in the words of Jeremy Waldron, it's really a travesty. So the first part of the critique, which I've, well, the critique I've titled, Don't Know Much About Theology, or perhaps philosophy as well. First, uh, first criticism, and this is something that when I, when I read some of this to my philosophy colleagues who don't have a background in law, uh, what I'm gonna, this, this first critique is, is, is what some of them said, like they couldn't believe that, 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 that these legal scholars actually offered this analysis of religion without realizing that what they said was on one level incoherent. So, so the first criticism uh, uh, is, uh, is this. Uh, let's, let, let's look at the quote from, uh, I wanna go back to the, the to, uh, to the quote from Sherry. Uh, in fact, um, I, I have it, I, I summarized it here in, in Proposition A. Reason necessarily denies incontestable truths. Okay? Reason necessarily denies incontestable truths. Leiter says something similar, right? Although it's a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, Gay says something similar as well. But Sherry actually says it the clearest. What's wrong with this? Well, the first question that should cross your mind is this. Is the claim that reason necessarily denies incontestable truth an incontestable truth? 
Think about it. If somebody were to say to you, don't believe anything I say, what would you do? Would you believe it? But if you did, then you would believe what they, but if you didn't believe it, you would deny, right? Either way, you're engaged in holding a, a, a belief that is incoherent. It's like claiming you have a brother who's an only child. It, it doesn't make any sense, right? Or imagine, I, I saw this years ago. I don't know if any of you, anyone still watches the McLaughlin Group. You know the McLaughlin Group? It's, uh, there's a guy named John McLaughlin. I think he's actually a former Jesuit priest. And uh, he, he hosts this show and he goes, he talks like this, issue one. On a scale of 10 to 1, 10 being metaphysical certitude. What would you think of this? And he, and he, and he asks the question. So one, one episode, McLaughlin says, is the media biased? On a scale of 10 to 1, 10 being metaphysical certitude, is the media biased? And Eleanor Clift, who's a writer for Newsweek, who's from, she's from Brooklyn, so she talks like this. She said, he says, uh, he said, he, she says, um, oh, John, um, she goes, nobody can be objective. And without missing a beat, McLaughlin says, well, if nobody be, can be objective, then we should reject what you just said, because it's not objective. Pat Buchanan, you know, who's also on the panel. So, so that, that, that's the problem with it, that if in fact, so this has to actually be itself, if this is the foundation or grounding of rationality, right, that reason necessarily denies incontestable truths, then it would seem that this would have to be an incontestable truth, which means what? It's unreasonable, which doesn't make any sense because it's supposed to ground reason, right? So let me move on to some others. Let me move on to some others. Um, let's look at another claim. Let's look at, uh, in fact, you can, there are actual certain truths that seem, that seem to be incontestable and necessarily true, like all bachelors are unmarried males. Two plus two equals four. A circumference equals two pi radius. Now, B, C, and D are necessary truths. They are true in every possible world, seem incontestable. Now, you say, well, that's just mathematics. Those are just things that are true by definition. Fair enough. But then there seem to be moral truths that seem really close to incontestable. In fact, they're the sort of truths that liberal scholars like Leiter, Sherry, and Gay would never entertain as being false, such as it is morally wrong everywhere and always to torture children for fun. The proper end of the human mind is the acquisition of wisdom. Human persons are beings of immeasurable worth and dignity. E, F, and G, although not incontestable logically, one could sort of, it's possible that they're false, right? Uh, you can imagine them being false in, on one level, but another level, if you had to sort of compare these propositions or claims to scientific claims, you'd actually probably say something like this. I can easily imagine, for example, Einstein's second theory of relativity being refuted before I could imagine that it is okay to torture children for fun. Which means that we actually hold to certain non-scientific beliefs uh, more strongly than we do to scientific ones. Which means that perhaps on these matters, the hard sciences aren't the model <laughs> of how we should go about figuring these things out, right? 
So that's, that's the first problem. There's something epistemically suspect with it, that it assumes what philosophers call kind of naive foundationalism. Now, uh, let me move on to the, to the second um, criticism, and that is that it begs substantive questions. What, what does that mean? Well, there are three aspects of, uh, of, the, of, of secular ra rationalism that, that religious beliefs are unprovable, incontestable, and cannot change or develop over time. All of which, I think all three can be shown to be, we can call them into question, if not show that they're simply false. Unprovable. Now what's really interesting here is that the one philosopher, who, or the one writer who happens to be a philosopher, who does deal with this in his work, Brian Leiter, absolutely dismisses the last 50 years of Anglo-American philosophy of religion, metaphysics, and epistemology that have dealt with this. So for instance, in one place in his book, he mentions very briefly the work of Alvin Plantinga at the University of Notre Dame. Plantinga is a famous, reformed Calvinist philosopher who has written some of the most eloquent defenses of the rationality of religious belief. And all that Leiter says is it's simply a defensive maneuver. And, it, and that's it. It's all he deals. And, and then when, when considering um, any sorts of arguments about theism, the only thing he mentions is the intelligent design movement and neo-Thomism. And I don't think he knows what neo-Thomism is. Because he actually doesn't cite anybody. You know? And with the intelligent design movement, there are many of us who are Christians who have problems with it and don't think it's necessarily the best way to defend theism. Uh, I myself have written critical assessments of intelligence design from, from a theological point of view. And of course, uh, there's a, a lot more uh, that, that's out there than even those. But it literally is maybe a few paragraphs of this sort of mention and dismiss, mention and dismiss. And then there's a passage where he says, he, uh, I want to get the quote here exactly. Um, see if I may not have it in my notes. Um, he says that, um, that he, he finds it odd that he said, you know, the people defending these arguments all happen to be theists. Now, I don't know about other areas of philosophy, but my guess is that the people that defend Marxism are usually Marxists, right? I mean, that. You know, that would, it would be odd if somebody, you know, continually defended beliefs they didn't think were true, right? So, I mean, it's sort of an odd criticism to suggest that the only people interested, or, or he actually suggests that it's the only people interested in this, and, that, and if that's what he's suggesting, then it's wrong. Uh, one of the things that, 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 that I've seen over my career in philosophy since being a doctoral student in the mid-80s is the seriousness uh, by which secular philosophers take theism. So, for example, Thomas Nagel at NYU, um, uh, Wainwright, William Wainwright, who uh, for years I think, or maybe it was Roe, I forget if it was the Roe or Wainwright, uh, who's considered a friendly atheist. Uh, uh, there are other uh, thinkers out there who in fact uh, have written stuff on, uh, uh, Draper is an, another, not, not the guy from uh, Mad Men, it's another, another Draper. Uh, who, who have offered uh, critiques of, of theism, but respectful critiques, and have interacted, for example, with my colleagues at Baylor 
working on, on books and, and anthologies and so forth. So uh, that world is simply dismissed by Leiter. And then, as I said, he says, isn't it interesting that those who, who seem to defend, who, who, the ones who are in the forefront are people who, who in fact believe it. And I think, well, of course, that's true of any area of philosophy. But it turns out that there are serious atheists who take theism seriously. Uh, another one is, is Michael Tooley at the University of Colorado, a very strong atheist who has debated uh, William Lane Craig, uh, who um, co-authored a book with Alvin Plantiga about the rationality of, of religious belief. I mean, this, it's not as if this has been happening in a corner. This has been published in the finest academic journals, in some of the greatest and most important and prestigious academic presses. So to simply dismiss it is, I, th I think, to quote Waldron again, a travesty, a travesty. Now, the other aspect of this claim that theism is sort of unprovable, not only are the arguments ignored, but the arguments are often misunderstood. That is, not all arguments for aspect of, aspects of theism are arguments that look like scientific arguments. And so a lot of philosophers, especially atheist philosophers who don't know much about what's going on in the philosophy of religion, will typically look for arguments that look like something in the hard sciences, and they don't find them there, and they go, oh, they really don't have arguments. Uh, it's almost like being going to, a bas uh, going to a baseball game and saying it's not a sport because there's not a 24-second clock. You know, just because uh, it, 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 philosophers who offer different sorts of arguments doesn't mean they're not really arguments, right? They're just different sorts. Let me give you a, an example uh, of what I mean. In the book, um, uh, the God Delusion by, uh, uh, by Richard Dawkins, he talks about a, um, a gentleman named Kurt Wise, who is a, um, a, pale, a paleontologist who studied under Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard University. And, and Kurt uh, entered Harvard uh, as a young earth creationist, that is somebody that believes that uh, the book of Genesis in its first chapter should be taken in the most literal way, and the earth is less than 10,000 years old. Uh, it's a view that, that, that I don't hold, and, and, and actually most Christians don't hold. Uh, it's really a view held by a small segment of evangelical Protestants, uh, but it's a view that, that Wise uh, still holds, and for that reason, he never, uh, uh, never was able to uh, acquire a position at a major research university, taught for years at several very, very small evangelical colleges, and seems happy about it, but in, in, in an autobiographical article that he wrote, this is what, um, um, oh, I, I'm not gonna quote from Wise, but in the article he explains why he, uh, why he continued to cling to young earth creationism, and he said, I'm willing to throw my career in the fire for what I believe. And this is what Dawkins says in response. He goes, I find that terribly sad. The Kurt Weiss story is just, uh, let's see, just plain pathetic, pathetic and contemptible. The wound to his career and his life's happiness was self-inflicted, so unnecessary, so easy to escape. I am hostile to religion because of what it did to Kurt Weiss, and if it did what, that to a Harvard-educated geologist, just think what it can do to others left, get, less gifted and less well-armed, unquote. And so, in some sense, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to Dawkins in, in the sense that I, don't, I think it's a false choice that Wise had. That is, either you're an atheist or you're a creationist. 
I, I think in that sense, uh, in that sense, he, it turns out Dawkins and Wise turn out to be on the same page, right? Uh, and I think that in, in a sense, uh, Wise didn't have to make that choice. He could have abandoned young earth creationism and still been a devout Christian, okay? But what's interesting about Dawkins' critique, one of the things that he says in his work, The God Delusion, is that Darwinian evolution has undermined any idea of teleology in nature. That is, the whole idea that nature is designed in any way. And concerning some types of design, he's right. That is, the kind of design argument that one, let's say, uh, may have read in the, let's say, in the 18th century or 17th century by William Paley, the watchmaker argument. Yeah, that type of argument may not uh, be plausible in light of Darwinism, okay? And there's a debate about that, but let's assume, yeah, there are certain types of arguments that don't work, but that does, that's not the only type of teleology in nature. In fact, what Dawkins does here in his criticism of Wise, he actually has to rely on a type of teleology that he doesn't even realize he's employing. Now, why am I making this point? I'm going to offer you a kind of argument that people like Dawkins and other atheist thinkers miss because they think that all arguments have to look like something in the hard sciences. So, in order for Wise to issue his judgment, he must know something about the nature of the sort of creature Wise is and the obligation that such a creature has to his natural powers and their proper function. But since Dawkins cannot discover the human being's intrinsic purposes or obligations to them by the methods and means of the natural sciences, he opines that these purposes and obligations must be illusory to believe in, uh, and, and to, uh, they're illusory to believe in, and childish. But in order to say that Kurt Wise has not acted consistently with his gifts, in fact, the word gift is used by Dawkins implies what? that there are proper ends or functions to one's cognitive powers that one can violate and it would be appropriate for us to condemn or commend it. That type of judgment that I made had nothing to do with the hard science. It has nothing to do with uh, whether Darwinism is right or not. It has to do with what, what, what was traditionally called first philosophy. And so you find a lot of the philosophical arguments by theists tend to be along those lines. Uh, that is, they tend to be arguments that don't look like the arguments of the hard sciences. And so, for example, people like Leiter and others say, well, those aren't really arguments. But that's simply begging the question. Either the arguments work or not. Whether they look like arguments in a discipline that you think has a monopoly on, 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 on knowledge, is, is, it doesn't really doesn't make it a bad argument. Uh, I've got to move quickly, and I want to open the floor for some questions. Uh, so I'm going to uh, briefly uh, mention my, uh, the, the next two points. Uh, uh, the second point uh, is that um, of the question of whether it's uh, falsifiable or whether arguments can count against it uh, or against belief in God. And so one of the, one of the claims made by, uh, by Sherry and Leiter and others is that uh, theistic or religious claims uh, are kind of unfalsifiable, but 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 it's it's interesting that 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 that, that if, if that were the case, why would theists spend so much time making arguments for the rationality of their position? I mean, theists understand that in fact uh, their point of view 
can be challenged and they offer counter arguments. What's also interesting here is that, is that Sherry and Leiter do this. They both mention cases of, of theists uh, like Kurt Wise, although they don't mention him by name, who obstinately stick to their beliefs in spite of the counter evidence. And actually, I don't think that makes their point. What, what it does, it actually means that there may be a character flaw in those people, but if anything, it makes the point that religious beliefs can be critiqued, right? It just means that religious believers sometimes aren't willing to abandon their beliefs, right? So it actually doesn't prove their point that religious beliefs are sort of insulated from criticism. If anything, it proves that religious beliefs, uh, in fact, can be challenged, and in fact, theists have issued responses. Finally, um, uh, in terms of begging substantive questions. The claim is that religious beliefs cannot change or develop. Uh, and each one of those thinkers seems to, seems to say that. Leiter is more explicit in this, on this point. This one was actually the most shocking of all because if you look at especially the history of Christian theology, uh, go back uh, you know, to the, uh, to the uh, early to middle patristics. Uh, Christian, the Christian church is encountering uh, not only, obviously, political and social mores of the Roman Empire, it's also encountering foreign or hostile philosophical, or apparently hostile uh, philosophical systems, right? Stoicism, Platonism, Neoplatonism. And what do the Christian thinkers do? They begin to assimilate the best of those pagan traditions, right? And in many ways, convert those traditions uh, for the service of the gospel. You can't make sense of the Nicene Creed unless you understand what? The deeper philosophical assumptions undergirding it, right? I, I was telling my students uh, at Baylor who I said, some of you go to uh, a part of liturgical traditions that, that recite the Nicene Creed. Do you know what, do you know what it means when it says that uh, the, the, the Father is in one, one substance, the Son is in one substance with the Father? It's just not a result of, of proof texting scripture. It's a result of serious philosophical reflection, right? So that's one example. Uh, I think of uh, some of the changes in embryology uh, from the time of, 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 of the Middle Ages to the 19th century where Christian churches begin uh, changing their view of the nature of the early embryos, a consequence of new embryology. Now, the church never changes it, the Catholic Church never changes its view on abortion. Right, but in terms of ensoulment, there, there is a change, right? Or at least there's a, there's a shift in opinion, right? It's, there are new facts out there. We're not going to abandon our metaphysical beliefs, but the facts, in fact, require us to think more critically about, about where we stand on these questions. Um, question of religious liberty, right? Uh, you have dignitatis humanae, uh, the uh, Vatican II document on religious liberty, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, I think it's perfectly consistent with the, the tradition, but you know, there's a sense in which the church is reaching back deeper into its tradition uh, to assert principles, but ultimately principles that are really well grounded in its, in its anthropology, and anthropology it never abandons. So you, and I, mentioned evol I don't have time to mention evolution, but uh, the, the challenge of Darwinism has been met in different ways by different Christians. Here's the point, the point is that, in fact, uh, the Christian, and I think more specifically, the Catholic tradition has within its resources in which it, 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 it can remain the same and yet in some sense develop over time. 
So I think on all three points, uh, these thinkers uh, are mistaken. Now I have one last point, but I don't really have the time to go over it. I think I've been talking now for nearly an hour, and I, open, I want to open the floor for some questions. Let me just conclude uh, again with a word of encouragement. Um, uh, remember, what, what I'm suggesting here, by the way, and I don't want to be misunderstood, I'm not suggesting that there aren't irrational religious beliefs or that religious believers can't be irrational. Of course they can. There's all sorts of beliefs that people hold uh, that they claim are, or, or in fact, part of their religion, and I think are probably irrational, or at least they, they don't seem to be uh, justified in holding them. On the other hand, there are people that are secularists who hold views that seem to be irrational. What I'm suggesting is that there shouldn't be, at least in the courts and in the legal culture, an a priori rule that says whenever somebody offers a point of view tightly tethered to a religious belief, it is de facto irrational. And, and, and finally, a word of encouragement for those who are in fact thinking about pursuing academic careers in law or medicine or any of the professional fields where many of these understandings of, or, the, or a general understanding of religion is held by many people, you know, we need your help and we need people who are well-educated, well-formed uh, to in fact be part of the good fight. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.